Welcome to a new podcast series from the CRISPR Journal, sponsored by Taconic. The series is entitled Essentials of CRISPR-Based Animal Models in Drug Discovery. And in today's episode, the title is Choosing the Best Genetic Modification Technology to Generate an Animal Model. Hi, everyone. I'm Kevin Davis, the founding executive editor of the CRISPR Journal and the author of the new book, Editing Humanity, The CRISPR Revolution and the New Era of Genome Editing. We're partnering with Taconic to bring you this three-part podcast series or mini-series that's going to explore topics around generating animal models using genome editing, IP and licensing questions, and hopefully impart some valuable and actionable information and insights to help you successfully perform and execute gene editing uh, experiments in animal models. In part two of this series, we're going to dig into the IP and legal considerations that are, uh, surround the licensing of CRISPR technology. And in part three, we'll ask the question and hopefully answer the question, what is so different about CRISPR founder breeding? Today, we're going to kick off with a discussion of the best genetic modification technologies to generate an animal model. My guests are two scientific program managers with Taconic, uh, both uh, joining us from Europe. Uh, I'm joined by Evert Jan Yuringa, scientific program manager with Taconic, and Dominic Bro, uh, also a scientific program manager with Taconic. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Kevin. Great to meet you and thank you for joining us. Uh, looking forward to our conversation. Perhaps, Evertian, I'll start with you and I would love to hear you just both give us a very quick background about uh, your scientific uh, resume and how you uh, arrived at Taconic and what your main function at the company is. Yes, of course. Well, I'm Evertian. Basically, I started my studies on uh, biotechnology, bioprocess engineering. Uh, then I moved uh, you know, to do a PhD in DNA repair and oncology. Uh, after that, uh, I went to Vancouver to the BC Cancer uh, Research Center, uh, where I studied uh, you know, aging-related uh, diseases, uh, premature aging. And after that, I went to uh, another institute to continue that research on uh, basically DNA uh, repair, genomic instability, uh, also telomere biology. And after that, I basically joined Taconic in that period, uh, you know, across those uh, different, you know, research times. Uh, I generated about seven models myself. Uh, so uh, that's basically my, my background. Great. And you're joining us from your, your home in the Netherlands, I understand. Yes, exactly. I guess, uh, I mean, the situation in which many people are nowadays uh, working from home in the Netherlands. Yep. Yes. Very nice. And Dominic, tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, so I also worked in academia before. I was around 14 years, uh, studied in University at Bonn in Germany, um, worked there on intermediate filaments. Then I changed the topic into more developmental biology and made a PhD at the University of Free University in Berlin in Germany, um, mostly working at my PhD to development of the spinal cord and nervous system. Then my former postdoc has um, changed a bit again for stem cell biology, they are mostly focusing on development of stem cells of the muscle tissue. Then yeah, four years ago, I then joined Taconic and also there served as a scientific consultant for all generation projects, same as Everdian. 
Excellent. Well, we really look forward to picking your brains over the next 20 minutes or so. Um, so let's start with what's asking, what are the main considerations, do you think, when determining what type of genetically engineered model is needed? Who would like to start? Oh, I can start with that one. I'm Evertian, so uh, this is, you know, I would say mainly determined by the scientific questions, uh, you know, you probably want to answer, right? So if you want to study a loss of function uh, phenotype, for example, it might be uh, most likely you want to generate a knockout or a conditional knockout, but it could also be uh, in case you want to generate, for example, a, a knocking point mutation model, if you want to generate a cat catalytic death mutant, um, for example. Uh, on other occasions, maybe, um, you know, when studying certain cancer types, uh, you might want to generate a model in which you overexpress an oncogene to induce the cancer. Uh, and that would be the best model. Again, uh, there might be different occasions, for example, for people who are in preclinical studies, and in that case, they want to express the human gene, so do a genetic replacement, or, or these type of models are mainly used uh, to do, you know, PKPD studies uh, to see what kind of drugs would be uh, most effective in these type of models. So that's, you know, it's really determined by, you know, what type of model uh, will be best suited for, for the study. So this is Dominic, I maybe can add a bit there. So just as everyone said, so the scientific question is maybe the main point where we first look, but there may be other restrictions of a project. So if somebody comes to us and has uh, just a certain budget or has some time limit or just a specific genetic background he needs, then of course, we also need to take this into account. Shouldn't be the main uh, consideration, but of course it can be important too. Are your clients mostly in academia or industry or how, what is the mix? I'm curious. Um, I would say it's really mainly a for-profit sector, uh, a really large part, uh, you know, the, the larger pharmas, then many, many biotechs, uh, medium-sized, but also many startup biotechs. And then, uh, you know, part of them are, are academics also, but I would say the, the majority of project comes uh, from for-profits, yeah. Let's uh, continue talking about the technology. What's, what is the best editing technology to generate a mouse or rat model? Yeah, maybe I can take this, so just Dominic again. Um, yeah, so saying there's a one best technology is maybe difficult, there's maybe not the one. Um, so really have to take into account what is the genetic modification you need, and then you can choose maybe there was the best technology or whatever restrictions you have for a certain product. Yeah, of course, there are some kind of products like if it's like a small modification like a considered knockout of the gene if you just want to knock in a small point mutation or make a small knock in um, of a certain size of one few kb and you can still use like a senior standard template then maybe crispr cas9 is the yeah first go um so it's very reliable for such um, modifications and as you might know it's quite fast um compared to other like ESL-based technologies. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe in this case, you choose this technology, gene editing. Um, but there are other projects which are more complex. Like if you want to modify um, allele to have a conditional knockout or knock-in, if you want to replace the whole gene, have a genomic, genomic replacement, for example, if you want to knock in a humanized version of the gene um, and take the mouse out at the same time, uh, then it's yeah, CRISPR is not efficient anymore to make these large modifications. And then you might want to change to like ESL-based projects, which might take a bit longer, but yeah, there you have some other advantages, like it's easier to make these large modifications. And also the validation is a bit easier because if you use ES cells, you can do 
also salam plotting directly in yourself, which helps if it's very complex to mm. make sure that you really have the right yeah, genetic modification there. So the services that you're offering, it sounds like it's a, it's a nice mix of the latest CRISPR editing technologies, but also still some more traditional um, tried and true uh, gene, gene knockout, gene replacement uh, technologies. Those haven't completely been forgotten about. No, again, this is, this is everything done again. I mean, uh, it's, it's exactly as Dominic says. I mean, uh, we, we, we follow, of course, uh, you know, new technologies. Uh, we always look at, you know, can we improve things? Uh, can we do more with CRISPR? Can we make a reliable product out of it, which we can trust, you know, from a technical perspective, but also, you know, can we uh, get a good hands on the timeline, right? Is that a reliable thing we can provide to our customers? And then, yeah, sometimes uh, we'll use CRISPR. And then uh, if we think, well, this is maybe uh, not the best technology to apply, we can go back to ESLs. Uh, and I would say, you know, ESL-based projects, but still the, you know, the, the major class of projects uh, we do. Okay. Okay. If time is of the essence, what technology do you advise uh, customers to use to generate a model? Uh, I think in the end, you know, it's most important to generate a well-designed and, and really fully molecularly validated model. So every technology has its strengths and weaknesses. And therefore, you want to apply, you know, the right technology to generate the best model in the end, right? Mm -hmm. So if time is of essence, you could choose to apply, you know, less optimal technology to generate a model. Uh, and in addition, I'll start maybe in parallel, you know, a model which, uh, with, with a more validated uh, technology. So at least in the end, you will have a model with the fastest timeline. I, I would say, you know, instead of trying to save time by taking all risk and, and uh, apply a less optimal technology or cutting corners at the molecular validation stage, uh, stages of the, the project, it will for sure pay off to develop an optimal colony management plan instead, right? Uh, and by mm -hmm. applying, for example, in feature fertilization procedures, uh, you can quickly expand your line uh, from a handful of animals to a large, uh, you know, size, colony size animals uh, for downstream studies. Uh, and I think in addition, uh, you know, a lot of time uh, might be saved in, uh, in the end if risk mitigation strategies have been developed for colony management. So I think, yeah, if time is of essence, you can take more risk to generate the model uh, with a less optimal strategy or go with uh, an optimal strategy and, and have a bit longer timeline. Yes, I see. Very good. Are there other considerations that are unrelated to the modification or the editing platform that you're using, uh, such as species or background strain, for example? Yes, so Dominic, again, um, there are. So, for example, um, yeah, if you look at, you want to use the rat or the mouse, uh, you have first want to check can i use all technology at all species for example the red uh, it's a bit there's some yes cells around yes lines but they're not widely used so for the red you're a bit restricted restricted to yeah technologies where you can use molecular injections like for crispr or for injecting a transgene or bug uh, for the mouse it's a bit similar also there you have of course yes lines but also there the yes lines mostly are from certain genetic backgrounds um, if you want to use something else, a different background, uh, genetic background, then it's difficult to use ESL. So then you also might prefer 
something like CRISPR-Cas9, where you inject directly in all sites, but they're also a bit more limited what you can do there. If you use like pronuclear injections, you have a wider choice. Um, so you can use any strain you want in theory, but also there you have to maybe take into account that like how good a genetic mouse strain just reacts on super ovulation. So how many oocytes, how the yield is. Uh, so just keep in mind that maybe the effort is a bit increased if you use some strains which are not normally used, uh, but you can use them and you also can modify existing mouse models. So which is the, the beauty of this system. Yeah, I think in addition, um, you know, you could also, uh, sometimes you might end up in a situation that you want to modify an existing line, right? So especially when, uh, you know, a customer might have a line which already has like four different alleles, it might be more efficient actually to use that, uh, you know, that line uh, to generate zygotes, which we can inject, for example, to create another knockout on top of that uh, by pronuclear injections or insert, you know, inject a back uh, to have another allele uh, on, on top of that line. And if not possible via pronuclear injections, you know, you could also think about maybe we should uh, generate a new ESL line uh, from the existing line. I mean, that that's probably... Uh, going to be more cost and time effective in the end than uh, generating a new line, having to cross that again to the existing line, which already has four alleles, getting all that to homozygosity, uh, which will take, uh, you know, a long time and will be, you know, quite costly uh, compared to, you know, doing it the way I just uh, described. Great. Let's talk about disease areas. Um, are there any considerations regarding model generation in relation to the disease area that the animal model will be needed for? Yes, certainly. Uh, I mean, there could be historic and, and scientific reasons, uh, you know, why, why a genetic background might be preferred above another one. For example, if you think about BELP-C, it's, you know, frequently the preferred background for uh, immuno-oncology research, since BELP-C has a, you know, a strong antibody-mediated uh, immune response. You could also think about hearing studies, for example. You know, you probably don't want to use C57 black six animals uh, since the, these animals suffer from progressive hearing loss. Uh, and in such a case, you maybe want to use FEB as a genetic background. I mean, there's many examples like this, you know, in which the right genetic background is, is really crucial for, for certain studies. So if feasible, you, you know, you probably want to generate a model uh, directly on the preferred backgrounds. Um, if that's not feasible, uh, you know, what you could do, of course, is, is back cross it to, you know, from a black six line, for example, to the line of your choice, but that will change, you know, take at least uh, five generations uh, to do so, right? Okay. Yeah, maybe another reason, so this Dominic again, um, where a lot of customers are, yeah, eager to have to write genetic backgrounds, also metabolic studies. So, because you know that different inbred mouse strains have some mutations which might interfere with metabolic pathways. So, if you then do your results and you get your, um, your, your experiments and you get your results and you want to compare the uh, existing data, you maybe want to use exactly the same as some other used or you used before. So, there are people also take care to use the right genetic background. Thank you. Great. For the end user, how important is it to have a detailed understanding of the technology used to generate the model in order to apply it in downstream studies, do you think? 
Um, yeah, maybe I take this question. So it's maybe not necessary that uh, end user really has a deep understanding in the technique. So it's important that the end user knows how the model looks like and knows all the risks. So that's why it, what we usually discuss with the customer before. And so he has to understand that that he can use it correctly for all details. How we generated them, how the technology is used, it's maybe not so important that he knows all that. But of course, if he's interested in that, he gets all details he wants. He can discuss with us. So. Um, but it's not really important. How do considerations on the downstream breeding of the model play into the selection of the genetic modification tool that you're going to use? I think it's, you know, it's always important to, to think about the larger plan, right? What do you want to do in the end with the model? Um, so it is important to take the you know, breeding into consideration uh, for model generation already. And then uh, I think as, as we discussed before, we can, you cannot use every uh, tool on every specific background. So you have to take into account, uh, you know, what is feasible there, uh, you know, what technology we can use on which, which background. Okay, I think my final question is, uh, and this will actually be a nice teaser for the next episode in this mini series. Um, would, you, would either of you care to comment on how IP and licensing uh, issues around the, the gene modification and gene editing technologies we've been talking about, how do those play into the selection of the most appropriate tool? Um, yeah, of course, as we said before, our main customers are for-profit organizations. So for them, it's really important that they have all their IPs, all their licenses for their models. And so a lot of techniques come with some IP issues. So you have to take care that your window where you get your model from is really has all this license, has all the rights. Um, so it's good to ask <laughs> if your vendor has all of these. Um, also, you know, for CRISPR, for example, uh, IPs and uh, is a huge topic. So you have even several IPs covering this technology. Uh, and also if you, often uh, customers want to share them all with some collaborators, some CROs. Also there, you have to take care that this is covered by the terms and conditions of your vendor. So this is very important. Thank you very much, uh, Evert Jan Uringa and Dominic Brull, uh, Scientific Program Managers with Taconic in Europe. A very interesting uh, and informative discussion to kick off this uh, mini series on essentials of CRISPR-based animal models in drug discovery and uh, we look forward to bringing you the next episode uh, in this three-part series uh, on the IP and legal considerations about around licensing CRISPR for animal model generation um, uh, very soon. Uh, but for now my thanks to Evertian and Dominique. Thank you so much gentlemen. Thank you so much Kevin. Thank you Kevin. And uh, thank you to Conic for sponsoring and organizing uh, this mini-series. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. I'm Kevin Davis with The Christopher Journal. Hope you enjoyed it. And we look forward to joining you with uh, part two of this series in the very near future. But for now, for all of my colleagues at The Christopher Journal and to Conic, uh, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.